Well, another Christmas has passed. The yearly calendar is running out. Our thoughts turn sort of nostalgic, maybe a little bit melancholy as we look at the end of the year and we seek the festivity of the new year to come. Everything's going to be bright and shiny and new again. I don't know about you, but my mood changes sometime in November. The leaves are gone, and I start to think about the passing of the year and the next one to come, and they seem to get quicker every year. And this time of year always strikes me as a twilight time, the time between the times. It's not quite one thing, not quite the other. It's a little bit bittersweet. Last week, Tim mentioned that Adele's song, Hello, was viewed over 100 million times in five days. And that is just amazingly remarkable to me. And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that album. And I'm wondering, what is it about Adele that is so compelling to us? I think it's no coincidence that her album dropped at the end of November, just in time for the push and the pull of the holidays, the time of year that our longing for the past gets filled up with trinkets and with baubles, and we try to recapture the magic, the wonder, fill up the empty spaces in our lives that we try to hide from. And Adele's is a smoky, melancholy kind of a sound that echoes with pathos, with desire. And it taps into something, I think, that is very raw and very visceral in all of us. I think it's a longing built into the very nature of the universe. We often can't name what it is. We don't know what it is we're looking for. We can't place it, but we can't let go of it. We seek to name it, and we're not sure what it is, but I think at its bottom, it is our longing for a life with God. I want you to listen for a moment to what Adele says in the introduction to her new album, 25. When I was seven, I wanted to be eight. When I was eight, I wanted to be 12. And when I turned 12, I just wanted to be 18. Then after that, I stopped wanting to be older. I feel like I've spent my whole life so far wishing it away, always wishing I was older, wishing I was somewhere else, wishing I could remember and wishing I could forget too. Wishing I hadn't ruined so many good things because I was scared or bored. Wishing I wasn't so matter-of-fact all the time. Wishing I had gotten to know my great-grandmother more and wishing I didn't know myself so well. Wishing I'd waited and wishing I'd hurried up as well. My last record was a breakup record, and if I had to label this one, I would call it a makeup record. I'm making up with myself, making up for lost time, making up for everything I ever did and never did, but I haven't got time to hold on to the crumbs of my past like I used to. What's done is done. Turning 25 was a turning point for me. Slap bang in the middle of my 20s, teetering on the edge of being an old adolescent and a fully-fledged adult. I made the decision to go into becoming who I'm going to be forever without a removal van full of my old junk. I miss everything about my past, the good and the bad, but only because it won't come back. 
When I was in it, I wanted out. So typical. 25 is about getting to know who I've become without realizing. And I'm sorry it took so long, but you know, life happened. There's a lot going on in there. That's only a part of it. There's a lot that hits home and maybe uncomfortably close to home. And maybe that's the reason why we are so drawn to her music. Today is December 27th. And so today, I want to take a page from Adele's book for a moment and take stock. I want to look back at the year that was and ahead to the year that is coming. I want to ask myself, I want us to ask ourselves, what happened? Why? Are we satisfied? Was it enough? Did we use the time well or did we waste it? Did I fill up my moments with things that matter or with trivia and vain pursuits? But I want to do it through a different lens. I would like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 marks the turning point of this book. It is the turn from the oracles of judgment against Israel to comforting of the people of God. And I think it's particularly appropriate given both the Christmas season and the coming New Year. And I won't be reading all of it, but I will be reading most of it. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see to it, and will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all human faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns in Judah, here is your God. See the so sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and hills in, the ba in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. 
Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? Verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or whom is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary, grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Father, Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the time that we can come together as one body to worship you, to praise you, to speak with you, and to hear from you. And I pray that the words of this message would be your words and that we would all gain from them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In our passage today, and I know it was a bit long, I think we see the seeds of four ways that we can live in this coming new year. There's a reason why I want us to take a moment to look back at the year that we've just had. Because for us, just like for Adele, the past often colors our desires and our plans for the future. If you have resolutions in mind for the coming year... They are likely a response to things that have happened in your past. It's only natural. So I ask, what was your life like in this past year? As an elder, I've heard a lot of stories from this church over the past year. Stories of pain and loss and heartbreak, of sin and sorrow. I've also heard stories of victory and perseverance Stories that make my heart swell. And I can say, look what God has done for us. I don't know what your stories are. I know a few. I barely know my own. The details get fuzzy. But a few things have stood out to me that have happened to me in this past year. Last January, almost a year ago, My brother-in-law was ordained in Windsor, Ontario. That was the blizzard weekend. Maybe you remember it. 
Canadians do not stop services or celebrations or the party afterwards for silly things like blizzards. It was snowing like I've barely ever seen. There were six inches of snow on the ground and the place, or on the roads. The place was packed. There was a reception afterwards and it's whiteout conditions and no one batted an eye. And later that night, there was a party and everyone showed up. Had to push a few people out of drifts to get them out, but everyone was there. In March, I got a new niece. In May, my oldest turned 16. In June, elementary school ended for us forever. 11 years a child in that school. And then, later that same month, the niece that I held in my arms as an infant while her mom and my wife prepared a church when I was going to get married, got married. In July, minions. Now you laugh. But that was the first time in 15 years that Nathan ever went to a movie theater. And that was a breakthrough. Oh, and then there was another small event at the end of July. That would be my 20th anniversary. We were supposed to go to Ireland, but our basement flooded. Permaseal got the money instead. Oh, well, there's always 25th. October. October. I launched a major Bible for work. I got to write an article for it which was very much a highlight. I got to write an article for Ann Voskamp's blog and a series of devotions for Way FM because of that Bible too. It was a very cool thing. What do you know? I might get to be a writer when I grow up after all. But in the middle of that Bible launch, that very same October, I thought I had food poisoning from the send-off when my sister went back to Uganda. No such luck. Four days I spent in the hospital. Came out with the diagnosis of diabetes. You know, checking blood sugars and insulin four times a day in the whole nine yards. Not what you expect on the verge of your 44th birthday. And of course I got out of the hospital and my wife got sick and had troubles. And then the week later I got rear-ended And October was a mixed bag, to say the least. It's been quite a year. And mine was tame compared to a lot of yours, because I've heard some of those stories. You've seen more and dealt with more than I could possibly imagine. You've lost loved ones. You've had the diagnosis you've dreaded. Surgeries and separation from family and friends and the loss of jobs and uncertainty And then there have been some great triumphs too. New children and marriages and blessings and illnesses overcome and tragedy turned to triumph, the triumph of God's faithfulness. But the events alone don't tell the story. Our responses fill in those gaps. And so these four possibilities in Isaiah chapter 40. Because this year... I want to enter in with more than just a resolution I'm going to break in three weeks. I want to actually live out my faith. But the first response we see is not a great one. Some of us 
choose to wallow and let the pain of our past control us. Let's face it, bad stuff happens. And if it didn't in this past year, thank God for it and get ready because it's coming. There isn't much guaranteed in life, but suffering is one of those things that is. Some of us choose to allow the wallowing to take over. We let our pasts eat us alive and never move on. It becomes the defining characteristic in our lives, and we're tempted to go down this road, all of us, and some of us more than others. There's a reason why in verse 1 of chapter 40 that God's people need comfort. They're in exile. They have endured much. Some of it, God himself punishing them for their past transgressions. And they have this bad habit of wallowing in it. In verse 27, that's what's going on. And I like the way the NLT puts it here. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? That's what they're doing, grumbling, complaining. You see, the people of Israel were not new to suffering. If you read the Old Testament, you see it everywhere. But they also had a long history of complaining as well. The Exodus is the defining story for the children of Israel. It's God's amazing and miraculous deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And what did they do from the very beginning? If you look at Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12, and you don't have to turn there now, the, the people of Israel are against the Red Sea. Egypt is pursuing. They have seen the plagues. And this is what they cry out. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. And we all know what happens. The Red Sea is parted. They are miraculously delivered again. And what happens next? In chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Not two months after the Red Sea, two months after they have been delivered from Egypt to begin with. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They've been delivered twice in two months. And we can wallow in the bad things that have happened, or we can make the past seem better than it was. They were slaves in Egypt. Or we can do it like Adele does it. We can look back at missed opportunities, never satisfied with what we have. We are the child who always wants to be older until we reach that magic age, and now we want our youth back. Why are so many of her songs, 
hello comes to mind, fairly dripping with regret. Hello, it's me. I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet, to go over everything. They say that time's supposed to heal you, but I ain't done much healing. And I think a lot of us live there. I think that's where a lot of us spend far too much time wallowing in the past. But perhaps you're not the sort of person to wallow for long. Maybe you're more prone to the second way that we respond, and that's to wander. Drifting through, we touch much and we grab hold of very little. I think this is perhaps the most common response that we as a people have to our past and to our present and our future as well. We drift, we let things happen to us. We bump into things along the way. We don't grab a hold for long. We're the leaf caught in the current that maybe we get stuck against a rock or circle around in a whirlpool for a very short time. But we never stay still. We're content to be driven along by the events and the people that we bump into along the way. And we're like the children of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years. And Isaiah echoes that in verse 3. We know verse 3 is a reference to John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. But the people of Israel would have connected their current exile to the exile of the exodus and wandering in the desert. And Adele speaks for us all when she looks back with regret on missed opportunities because she was wishing for something else. We do the same thing. She recognizes that she wandered around as a kid, drifting, but she only misses the past because it won't come back. Deep down, she still wants to drift. There were no consequences then, and she sees them now. Of course, the reality is there are always consequences. We just typically don't see them until it's too late. We keep drifting, becoming immune to life along the way, always looking for the new, the better, for something that will give us peace or hope or a sense of belonging or fulfillment. But our perspective is wrong. Because verses 6 to 9 in Isaiah 40 remind us of something important. As beautiful as a meadow is, as wonderful as a field of flowers might be, they don't last. The new and the novel will be old next Christmas. We'll be lucky if we haven't moved on next month. The next gadget, the next movie the next toy, the next relationship, because we only have a vague notion of what it is that we really want, of where we're going or why. And then there's the, we can get pious about this as Christians. We quote James 4.15. We want to sound spiritual. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. And we get the words right And we get the point of the verse entirely wrong because we use it, maybe on purpose, as an excuse to drift, as an excuse not to make the choice that we know we need to make. We sound pious and avoid the very thing that God has called us to do. 
Sometimes we really don't want to do what God is calling us to do. We don't want to sacrifice because we are content to drift. Following Christ costs us something. And so we elevate freedom to an unhealthy degree and make an idol of it, twisting something good. After all, God freed the slaves from Egypt, but we turn it into a new captor. Freedom becomes simply the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and that is, of course, not freedom at all. It's slavery to whim. It's captivity with silk sheets and good food to eat. But as the eagles sang in Hotel California, we're just prisoners here of our own device. They were singing about drugs, but you know what? We allow ourselves to get addicted to a lot of things, including our own wandering. So maybe you're drifting into the future, or maybe you have been, and maybe you're tired of it. And that's where Adele seems to have landed. See, Adele is now changing her wishing. Her wish is deciding that she will control her destiny moving forward. It's a different sort of wish than she wished when she was a kid. She realizes that all of her wishing in the past was little more than looking for a way to avoid making a choice to avoid taking a stand, and so she's decided, I will make my life different now. She wants to control her own destiny. And that is, of course, what we do at this time of year, right? We make resolutions. This time, it will be different. This time, I'm going to take charge and fill in the blank on whatever resolution you have been thinking about. Some of us even achieve that difference. Some of us are driven by nature. We know what we want and we will go to great lengths, maybe even any lengths, to get it. This is what Adele said. She said she was making up for lost time. What's done is done. And at 25, she's growing up and has, I quote, made the decision to go into becoming who I'm going to be forever without a removal van full of my old junk. 25 is about getting to know who I've become without realizing. The irony here is that this statement is both very wise and very naive all at the same time. We all need to make up with ourselves sometimes. We need to realize that what's done is done and that to some degree, we're going to cart around that baggage for the rest of our lives. There's wisdom there. There's wisdom in getting to know the person we've become without realizing it, to gain clarity in our lives. And it's very hard to move on, to break old patterns, when we don't stop, when we don't take stock, and we're not willing to be honest with ourselves about who we are and how we react and what we have become in spite of and because of ourselves and the choices that we make. But we are never who we will be forever. At least I hope not. I am not the same person I was at 25. And some of that is very good. Some of it, not so good. I look back today and honestly, I long for the optimism of when I was 25. There are a lot of days when at 44, I could use that optimism. There's also a lot of life that has happened between then and now 
that has given me a perspective that I simply couldn't have then. And I wouldn't trade it, even if I don't want to go back through those experiences again. It's tricky because I would much rather live a life where I am choosing to move ahead than wallowing or drifting. And it, given this time of year, it can be tempting to stop here, to tell you to choose to live intentionally. And if I were giving a motivational speech and not a sermon, I probably could stop there. But I'm not. And Isaiah forces us to confront a very important reality. There are things we simply cannot control. Our power to set our own destiny is not quite so powerful as we would like it, even if it's greater than we sometimes allow for. In verse 9, Isaiah tells the messengers of the good news to say, Your God is coming. This is not just an encouraging word. This is a victory proclamation. In the ancient world, there's no Twitter, there's no Instagram to give you immediate news of what's going on. After a battle, the runners would be sent to declare victory. And in this case, Isaiah is saying, it's not a king who's coming to claim victory, it's God himself. God is ending the exile. And he's also telling us, as we know from this Christmas season, that a permanent answer to our problems is coming. He is sovereign and powerful and so much greater than you or I. He holds the oceans in his hand and measures the universe in verse 12. He does not need advice or instruction about what is good or just in verses 13 and 14. Why? Because he is wisdom and holiness and justice. He is greater than the nations whom are a drop in the bucket and dust on a scale to him. He judges the great people of the world in verses 23 and 24 and brings them to nothing. The NLT says they hardly get started, barely taking root when he blows on them and they wither. So yes, we can make decisions. We can make changes. We can do more than drift, but we have less control than we would like to believe. Because what happens when life throws you a curveball? What happens when our best laid plans are interrupted? We can't account for everything. Even if we could, it doesn't mean we could control it. And many of you have seen this in living color in this past year. I know I have. In the past three months, I've been tempted to wallow, to give up and drift along. And I've wished for a life of control. But none of that will satisfy. So what do we do? As believers, what is our calling in this coming year? I believe it is this. We need to live our lives daily in light of Christmas. We need to wait on the Lord. It's that verse we've all heard. Maybe you have it on a mug or a painting framed in your home. Maybe you've memorized it. And those are all good things. But I have to ask, are we using it as a pick-me-up or are we taking it to heart? Is it a Christian version of a talisman that we hold to keep evil at bay? A mantra to make us feel better? 
or is it a truth that is sunk deep down into our very souls? Because for all of my, wait, did I say my, I meant our, affinity for the songs of Adele, for all the truth that she tells, she doesn't tell enough. This is the problem with every philosophy, every lifestyle or religion that doesn't take Christmas for what it truly is, the hope of humanity. The song says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away our sin, the life and light of men who died and rose again. This is the difference. Other religions, other plans for getting through the new year, other resolutions to change who we are or what we do contain truth. They can even be effective, at least for a while, but they can never truly deliver because they don't tell enough truth. They don't go far enough. And some of you in this room are probably asking, yeah, but is Christianity any different? Can it really deliver? Maybe you're not even asking anymore. You've just given up. You don't believe it. You're just here to make someone happy or because it's expected and you really don't believe it. You've seen it all and done it all and bought the t-shirt and it's old and full of holes and paint in the bottom of the drawer. You would ask, what does your baby Jesus look like here and now in the real world? What difference does Christmas have for the rest of my life? If Christianity is just nice feelings of nostalgia at this time of year, if it's just our attempt to connect with God, then no. It can't deliver. But if Isaiah is right, if Christmas is true, that makes all the difference in the world. What does it mean to, as the King James say, wait upon the Lord? Sometimes it feels like wait means I gotta wait forever. My strength isn't renewed, and there are no eagle's wings here. But waiting is more than biding our time. The NIV translates wait, hope. The NLT translates it, trust. And both are pointing to a part of the meaning, and it's something like look to in trust and confidence. You see, hope is not wishful thinking, far more than that. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. So you see, hope is more than the thing I really, really want that might possibly come true if everything just lines up exactly right. The hope in Hebrews is certain. It is the forward look of faith which, as we look at the lives of the people in Hebrews 11, show the reality of what God is up to. Hope is inseparable from faith. Real faith produces hope of a kind that nothing else can. A hope based not on our feelings or our decisions about the past or the future. Real faith is based on what God has done. And that's why our hope is certain. Because Christmas reminds us that he has come for us. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. None of the people in that chapter had it together. They are a motley crew of suffering, sin, and failure, just like the rest of us. But their anchor, their hope, was God. They didn't receive all that God had promised. 
and their faith remained. How much more those of us who know Christ, who have experienced Christmas. We have hope because of Jesus. And as Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 puts us, tells us, let us run the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So what does it mean to wait upon the Lord? Five quick elements. First, realize that your life is not your own. This is God's story. In verse 27, when Israel is questioning, they're basically asking, God, are you really there? And they sound like us. We hold back saying that we believe him, yet living as if it is all up to us, and he does not and will not intervene. We want lightning bolts from the sky to smite our enemies, or at least silver bullets, so that we can kill them ourselves. We want a nice, neat, tidy life, all wrapped up in a bow, because we have fallen into the trap of believing that it's all about us. And it doesn't matter if we are wallowing or wandering or wishing for control, it always comes back to us. But Isaiah says this is God's story, that God made the universe and sits among the stars, that this is the God we hope in. Isaiah points to Christmas, which tells us that this is a trustworthy God, a God who values us and wants to be with us, wants us to be with him. It is his story, and he is such a different sort of a God than any other that he's willing to become one of us. And so that means that second, we've got to release our past to him. Whether good or bad, if you are letting your past control you, your present, your future, you are not heroically going on like Adele without waiting for a truck to take all your baggage away. You're deluding yourself. And it is not a Christian response. You see, throughout the New Testament, People come to Jesus and he releases them from their past. The woman in John 8, brought before Jesus as a trap, but she has a real sin problem. Or think about Peter who denies Christ, or Paul who persecutes Christians and reminds the people he writes to of who they once were. Not so that their past can control them, but to remind him, them all that Jesus takes us all. That he can be trusted with our past. If we keep the past, he won't take it. But if we release it to him, he will use it for his glory. Your past may or may not be your fault. It may be good or it may be bad. It may be painful and raw, but when we give it to God, he can use it in amazing ways. He can allow us to draw fulfillment from the very thing that causes us pain. He can heal others through our trauma. And let me tell you, when you see that happen, when you get to be a part of that, it is amazing. Third, we can resist the current. You can allow yourself to drift, or you can choose to swim. Verse 29 tells us that God gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. We don't have to drift. We can decide to move against the current. We can follow after God, but we just can't do it on our own. We like to think we can, but we're not made that way. We are made to be a people. Think about the Christmas story. Christmas didn't happen to just Mary. 
Elizabeth and Zechariah, their friends and the priests in the temple who interacted with them, John the Baptist and Joseph and his family and Mary's family and the shepherds and the angels and Simeon and Anna and so many more. And that's just up until Jesus is eight days old. We are not islands. We are not intended to be. We don't get to resist if we're not together. We have to know the current is there. And we need the power of God's word in our hearts and minds and his spirit working to let us see what he's up to. It's why we spend time in scripture every Sunday. We do this by knowing him, by learning who he is and who we are and what the world around us is. And that's why Adele's intro is so tragic to me. Because she's gone a long part of the way there. Self-reflection and honesty is important. It's just not enough. You see, we need Christmas. We need God's coming more uh, to us on our behalf. Fourth, we need to recognize we can't control everything. It's when we come together in his strength that we resist that current together because our, on our own, verse 30, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. Not everything's controllable. Remember that. But we need to remember that clarity and direction mean that we're living God-centered lives. It's okay not to control everything. It's liberating because we know he is. Finally, we need to renew our strength and purpose in him. And here is the verse we all know. Our strength is renewed by our hope in him. I'm not sure what the coming year looks like for you, But here's what I do know. On my own, I'm gonna fail. I need you and I need him holding me up. If I'm going to soar, it's going to be because of him. And I wanna blow your eagle pictures out of the water for a moment. The bird in question probably isn't an eagle. It's a raptor. It's probably a vulture. Gotta get rid of those pictures now. I dare you to replace them with, uh, with one of a vulture. Vultures are ugly, but they're even more effective than eagles at soaring. They can soar on the thermals for hours, barely moving, and I think that's an awesome picture because I know I can be pretty ugly sometimes. But when God is under me, holding me up, that ugly thing can do something that almost nothing else on the planet can do, and it's all because of him. So as we leave here today, I want to leave with one question to ponder. What does Jesus look like today? My hope is that he's going to look like me. That he's going to look like you. I mentioned earlier that I was diagnosed with diabetes in October. It's never going away. It's been more than a little bit disheartening. But the people in this church have offered support. Frank Roberts has offered encouragement. John Redman was another, John's perspective was fantastic. View it as Paul's thorn in the flesh. Let it remind you that God is always there and in control. And let it draw you closer to him. That looks like Jesus. But to me, in the end, Jesus looks like a nine-year-old girl. She wrote me a letter. I was in the hospital and I had Loretta text her mom and say, hey, Rachel, Lydia is going to have to be my teacher now. 
And I have Lydia's letter right here. But I decided that it would be better for you to hear it in her words. Dear Mr. O'Brien, hello. I heard you have type 1 diabetes. I brought you something. The bars and juice boxes are for your lows or to snack on. The other stuff is for diabetes. How are you feeling? How long did you stay in the hospital? How are your blood sugars? Do you understand it? One very helpful thing that I have is a Dexcom. It checks my blood sugars every five minutes. It's really nice. Maybe your insurance company will let you have one soon. Are you on a pump or do you take shots? I'm on a pump, and it's really fun and nice because you get to press a lot of buttons. My brothers sometimes do it, and they love it. If you're really stressed out, here's a really good verse for you to remember. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Matthew 6, 34. Well, I hope you have a great day. Oh, and remember, God did this all for a reason. Like, he gave me diabetes for a reason, and I still haven't figured it out. Well, bye. That is what living in light of Christmas looks like. I'll listen to Adele, but I want to live like that nine-year-old girl because she looks like Jesus. Amen.